delighted to welcome Felicity Lewington, who was a colleague at the same school providing one-to-one -one teaching of international pupils in English and learning support for any pupils who needed help with study skills. I marvelled at her patience and grace in helping Chinese, Japanese, Spanish and Italian pupils with their studies and the warm friendships that she established with the whole family continuing to this day. Felicity is also a professionally accredited Green Badge Guide, taking tours of Oxford for 11 years. Her tours aim to provide light bulb moments of, I didn't know that. They're a mixture of fun, contemporary facts, plus the fascinating history of the ancient city of Oxford. I can certainly vouch for that as I brought a French girl on the Harry Potter tour, which was brilliant, even in the rain. She's going to talk to us more about working one-to-one -one with international pupils in schools. So could you explain, um, you have, are taking a unique role here, a unique position, uh, about the value of working with an international child one-to-one? -one. Well, thank you for your introduction, Felicity. Um, yes, I, I found it uh, a real privilege in the school that I taught in that um, I was given the opportunity to have one-to-one -one because it accelerates their movement through the school academically through a series of exams, usually the Cambridge exams that are all graded into beginners and then intermediate and then first certificate, which is about the equivalent of our GCSE level. And one-to-one -one can accelerate learning. It can give that child confidence and it can be a positive experience for the child and the school. That's great because uh, certainly it can be very challenging for a child. Uh, I was looking at placing a child in a, a college so he was going to be having one-to-one -one teaching but from his personality I thought that was going to be quite challenging, difficult for him. Um, could you say how it, how it worked out for the children who you were looking after? Yeah I, I quite agree. I think it can be challenging. Um, I remember myself uh, as an adult learner, uh, the pressure on you when you have a teacher looking at you, and I was always teaching obviously in a room at the side somewhere of the school. So often these were small rooms and you had to be very careful that you didn't give strong eye contact, strong body language the whole time, and that you gave the pupil space to think and to really work out what it was that you were going to do together. So very often, um, my lessons would have periods of time where I would set them a small exercise, or sometimes it was a speaking exercise where I'd give them time to think, and I would remove myself. I'd never leave the room, but I would go and do something, uh, a little bit of work in one corner, so that they were just given the opportunity to just quietly think through the tasks that they'd been given. It's tremendous. You wanted to nourish the child. Um, what did you mean by that? Well, I really believed that if the pupil at that school felt happy and confident that they would be an asset to the school. And that couldn't come about unless that pupil with you felt 100% comfortable and so I really tried very hard to forge relationships with the pupils that I taught. And so that nourishing also meant that I got to know their parents if I was teaching and their parents were in the UK. I have also taught pupils whose parents are not and they've got guardians. 
but I would always try to have a, a thorough, rounded relationship with the family and the pupil to help that child settle as effectively as possible. Yes, that's uh, beautiful. Thank you very much. So um, your brief went beyond helping the children to supporting their subject teachers. Um, how did you go about this? Well, communication was incredibly important. And so I got to know the various heads of departments very, very well. And I really wanted to support them because it's hard work when you're already teaching a class and then you're asking for differentiated work. So very often I would really help them prepare worksheets. I would tell them the basic levels of what that pupil was at, the standard that they were at. And I would also accept a lot of help from that uh, subject teacher as to what they were going to want from that pupil, what targets, etc., they wanted. It was important, I did have to go to department meetings or have extra one-to-one -one meetings with those uh, teachers so that I, they were really well briefed, as was I, so that I could really help them. But I must also say that um, when I, I had these pupils coming in, um, they really did not do a full timetable. They were on a reduced timetable, so that made it easier for me to have more success and the classroom teacher, the subject teacher, have more success because they were on a reduced timetable. It's really only after about six months and a certain level of English that the full timetable came into operation. Yes. Well, do you find that the younger children uh, were easier to work with uh, than the older ones? And if so, yes. why would that be? Mm. Yes, definitely. Uh, younger children are much more flexible. Uh, they could make <laughs> friends easily. They're not as awkward of themselves because they're still very impressionable and uh, are quite interested in what's going on. The teenagers that came to the school that I taught at were more self-conscious, more worried about failing. I think the younger you are, you don't quite have that kind of uh, mindset. Mm. Um, however, um, the pressure on a younger child was more intense in a way to learn as quickly as they could. And I was very lucky, most of the, 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 the pupils I had were, were quite gifted academically and were able to learn quite quickly as youngsters. Yes, that's, a, that's very special. Um, so the sixth form, I think certainly um, I experienced when I was in the school with you, um, some of the children were quite established in their sense of identity. Um, and uh, so it was much harder for them to adjust. Uh, particularly if their parents um, didn't speak English and were still in the country and had come to this country. Uh, so it made it harder for them to have to be bicultural every day. Um, so um, I very much remember that. Um, sometimes children came to the school because there was an international business as we uh, had. Um, Honda came to Swindon and uh, there were quite a number of Japanese families who moved uh, into our area. Um, where children had little English, how did you equip them to be so successful academically and socially in the school? Well, I think this nourishing atmosphere of one-to-one, -one, a reduced timetable, a thorough um, relationship with the family, mm. and making, making the uh, pupils at the school really understand that this pupil was going to add value to the school. One of the things that I think is very easy to forget is that when you're in immersion English situation, 
that pupil feels stupid a lot of the time mm -hmm. because they are behind the curve. They sometimes don't understand the different accents that teachers have. And of course, we speak very casual English very often. And so they very much felt that they were slow. And unless, as, a, as, as I gave myself the task of making sure that that pupil's school friends understood that they weren't slow, yes. that they just needed time to adjust, to be accommodated. And also, I was very keen that the school pupils really understood the culture that these kids came from. And so, particularly with the Japanese, I had a very interesting experience with one of my Japanese pupils. Um, I instigated a haiku competition, so I worked across curricula with the English department, and uh, the year sevens had great fun with haiku, and we had a competition. And this young pupil's mother was a haiku expert, and she was still receiving a haiku tuition from a master in Japan. And she very kindly, because I asked her if she would judge the competition, and that brought her into the school so that she could meet her daughter's friends as well. Um, but she then went one step further, and she very kindly sent all of this work that they had done to her master in Japan, and he wrote in really very good English little comments as to how these pupils could, in, who, could improve their haiku. It was a fantastic success. Mm, that's uh, delightful. Uh, thank you. And I think sometimes we've even had the um, the dining room have special meals and uh, things like that. Yes. All, um, all the usual important ways of promoting that schools often do anyway. But yes. I always try to go one step further. So the summer holidays were, were in a period where I would send them back because they often were going back home to get their national costume because as soon as they came back in the September, we would have a celebratory day. Very often it was linked to the European Day of Languages, but I would bring in an international flavor to that. So I had Spanish uh, students who had great fun dressing up in their Spanish costumes. And that was a cross curricula because we had flamenco and dance with music and mm. with PE. And that was a lot of fun. So I would always prepare them in the holidays to have some really big cultural uh, festival, which they were very involved in, and it gave them a high profile. And the pupils of the school were often very fascinated by mm. seeing all these different ways of going about things in their costumes, etc. Yes, and of course celebrating rather than just um, presenting in a, an academic sort of a way, you know, through a talk or something like that, uh, made it all, also a great deal of fun. Yeah, um, I think we had a tea ceremony, didn't we, as well? We uh, did, yes. And that, you know, that again is promoting this idea that um, although these pupils are here within our culture, we must celebrate the cultures of the world and uh, perhaps not feel too superior as we sometimes can within our own cultures, that we're the most important, but know that we're all part of a human family. Yes, yes, thank you. Um, you mentioned to me about a Korean girl um, and uh, who came to this country when she was about 10. Um, could you explain that experience that uh, she had of going home? This was one of the first pupils that I had, so some time ago. 
uh, was a young girl and uh, she had come at the age of 10 and uh, she was with guardians uh, in the uk and she basically at that time was only going back once a year back home so she was very much steeped in this immersion english Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really thought necessary to keep up her Korean language acquisition. So what she told me um, after we got to know each other was that when she felt home, she felt very disadvantaged because her Korean language was often quite childlike and that she hadn't been able to expand her knowledge and particularly not her written Korean and that she had felt disadvantaged by this and this really was a light bulb moment for me because I hadn't really appreciated just how important it is that these students these pupils coming into our educational system if they're going to be truly bilingual they must keep up with their first tongue with their the first language that they learn and then English becomes an additional language but they become this more rounded person because they have their own language and their own writing, particularly for the cultures where you have extremely difficult alphabets like the Mandarin, Cantonese, Korean, Russian. I've taught Russians. Very, very important to keep the Russian written language going. Yes, yes. Thank you very much indeed. Yes. um, Would you recommend all schools that have a significant international population to have a member of staff that works in the way that you did, one to one? I think if you've got the budget, if the uh, pupil's family are prepared to pay for that, and um, I was lucky in the schools that I've worked in, that Mm -hmm. was the case, then it cannot be bettered in my opinion it lasts for a short time it lasts really for about a year a year and a half once that pupil has got their language their language acquisition they are flying and free in the school and they can do very very well but that initial period of time can be so vital in being a positive experience for the school because we've got to remember the enormous workload that it, this brings into the school. But I think it can be mitigated by a, a teacher who can then be uh, knowledgeable in one-to-one teaching. Yes. Yes. Well, that's tremendous. Thank you very, very much. Is there anything else that I perhaps could have asked that um, you would like to add? Well, I just, I just think that it was one of the most exciting and challenging periods of my career. I, I learned so much and the schools that I taught in learned so much. I think it's got tremendous value for us, particularly in this era where perhaps we're slightly battening down the hatches where internationalism is concerned, is to keep those doors open. Yes, yes. Thank you. Well, I'm sure with that strategy, (laughs) uh, with one-to-one teaching would be a great help. Thank you very much indeed. Could you give a couple of examples of differences in cultures that you experienced, perhaps Japanese, Spanish, Russian? uh... Um, I was always very interested, um, without going into stereotypes, there are differences in school in schools and um, I found that the Japanese and the Chinese had extremely good study skills. They knew how to learn, they knew how to get themselves organized, 
they worked very neatly and they worked with purpose. Um, they found um, learning imaginatively slightly more diff difficult. So within English, they found having to do imaginative writing or to be able to read a connotation. Of course, that does need cultural references. They found that more difficult, but they were much happier to accept the um, rules within our school system. And they were much happier to accept our uniforms because of course that was something that they recognized. So that was an area that they immediately felt comfortable in. Whereas in my experience, I found the French and the Spanish and the Russians that I taught hadn't been used to uniforms and they found that quite difficult. Uh, <laughs> they didn't always appreciate that uniforms actually can be tremendously useful in a school. Um, uh, they didn't always appreciate that. And very often uh, their approach to learning was not as ordered and their study skills were not as developed um, as the other uh, nationalities that I've talked about. Mm. Um, but overall, because I tried very hard to promote um, the fun sense of learning, they all really developed very, very well. Um, and all became very keen on the British system. And I do think that that's one of the things that's very interesting about our system is that the schooling that some of these children experienced um, could be very academic, yes, but the British school system seems to provide a rounded experience of playing games, of drama. These children all do these, but very often they're extracurricular with their parents and clubs outside of school they often found the day quite exhausting because of all the extracurricular activities that we did. But once they understood the, their importance, they really bought into it yes. and they were successful uh, in those sides. And of course, if you had a Spanish boy who was good at tennis or um, somebody playing football, that gave them tremendous kudos within the school as well. <laughs> yes, absolutely right, yes. Uh, Felicity, I've very much enjoyed um, chatting with you and I'd be very grateful if you would stay on for questions from our audience um, for the next 20 minutes. Thank you very much. You're welcome.